So I started with a scripture here. Let's see if I can get my thing working. For wisdom is more precious than rubies, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Do you believe that? Anyone honestly believe that? <laughs> I'm trying to believe it. I'm working on believing it. There's a lot of things that I desire that seem to compare with a little bit more wisdom. But this is one of the, the affirmations of God's word is that wisdom is one of the most valuable things we can seek and attain in this life. But the challenge is we can't just suddenly become wise. No one becomes wise overnight. Uh, we don't get to you know, plug into the, the matrix and download wisdom into our brains. Knowledge of what's right or what's wise is not the same thing as being wise. And so it leaves us with this question of how do we become wise? Or even more importantly, as a church, as a community, what is our plan for teaching people the way of wisdom? What is our plan for teaching people the way of wisdom? And that's a difficult one. And so tonight, we're going to take on just a little bit of uh, what the Scripture has to say, this chunk of Scripture that we call the wisdom literature. And Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job are three books that live in tension with one another. And we want to hear tonight from these three different books, but they don't really fit neatly together. And that's a part of the beauty of it. I think we're often uncomfortable with the tension that we find within the Bible. And I think that discomfort for many of us uh, forces us to kind of reevaluate our simple, simplistic understanding of Revelation. What does it mean that this is God's word? To us? What does it mean that it doesn't err if, or that, that, that God made no mistakes in giving it to us if these books are sort of tense in their messages with each other? The Bible isn't quite what we want it to be, and I would say it's actually quite a bit better than we thought it was. So we're going to hear three different voices on wisdom from the scripture, but they are only a fraction of what the Bible has to say, or, and certainly only a fraction of everything there is to say about wisdom. These are not the Bible's last word, but they are very important words to us. And more, most importantly, these books teach us where to look for this most precious resource of all wisdom, and that's that we look to God. And I know for me, that's just been a, a lifelong journey. God has whatever you know, small amount of wisdom I've accumulated in my years obviously comes from God. I've gotten so much of it uh, from him via my parents through uh, Brady Bobbink up at, at CCF in Washington. Mandy has been a voice of wisdom in my life. My wife, Peter, Rhett, my brother Casey, Brad, so many others. And I think God has taught me to learn and listen to learn from and listen to the people around me. And so one of my most common prayers uh, from the time that I was in high school comes from James 1.5, where James just says, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God for it because he gives generously. 
without finding fault. It's like, here's a prayer that apparently God doesn't say, like, you're not good enough. It's like, no, if you ask, I'll give it. And so even to this day, it's probably almost a daily prayer, sometimes a multiple times a day prayer that as I'm sitting down, when, when someone's asking me a question about advice or scripture or anything, it's like it's always in my head and on my heart of, Lord, give me wisdom. And so there's so many different things, and I think I've made a lot of wise choices over the course of my life. Many of you could say the same. I've also made some pretty stupid choices, some foolish choices over the course of my life. Foolish choices in, you know, growing up in, in my use of humor, uh, at others' expense, not always, you know, uh, exaggerating the truth to get the laugh. You know, I was foolish in, during college in, in the way that I dated, not taking people's advice, risking, you know, at one point, not only my heart, but another person's heart by making her my best friend against all the wise counsel that I was given. And I'm not married to her. You know, there have also been times that I think I looked foolish to the people around me, but I was actually being obedient. I was doing what I, I, I had a conviction that God had called me to do. But, and that doesn't always look wise to the people around us. I've been called into some difficult situations, some difficult assignments, some difficult friendships. You know, I remember there were people that thought I was foolish for the, the college that I chose based on, you know, where I could have gotten into, the major that I chose, the career that I chose. And there are going to be all of those things in our lives where we, it ultimately comes down to us and God and knowing that his wisdom at times will trump the wisdom that the world has for us. Because God sometimes calls us into what uh, is difficult and painful. And we see that throughout the scripture. Was Hosea wise to marry that unfaithful prostitute? Was King David wise to not retaliate against Saul. The world would be like, no. And maybe even a lot of other uh, godly people would be like, no, that's not wise. But they were, they were doing what God called them to, and so there's a deeper wisdom in that. The Baymont podcast uh, calls these three books Tools for the Journey. I think that's my next one. And I really liked that. They're not comprehensive tools, they contain some wisdom, but more importantly, they're tools for gaining wisdom in all the different areas of life. So this afternoon and evening is about adding to your toolbox, equipping you for the journey that you're on. And so we will look at these three books uh, step by step. Uh, Pedro and Drew and Lindsay are going to teach on those three books, and then I'll come back up and, and conclude us talking a little more generally about wisdom. But I wanted to, as Pedro come, starts coming up, I wanted to end with this quote that I really uh, liked from Mark Laberton. He was the uh, president of the, the seminary I went to when I was there. He said, the one thing every Jesus follower needs every day is always the same, wisdom. It's the thing that every Jesus follower needs every single day of their life is wisdom. And so as Pedro's coming up, I want you to just very briefly with a neighbor answer the question, what's one thing you hope to get out of our time together today? So like Brandon said, my name is Pedro Paz. I'm one of the pastors over at Colin. Go Cougs. 
And today I'll be walking us through the Proverbs. Um, so I put up here just a few uh, Proverbs that really stood out to me. The first is, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and the one who is wise saves lives. Whoever spares the rod, or in my case, the chancla, those of you who know, know, <laughs> hates their children, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. Iron sharpens iron, and one person sharpens another. And Kristen sent me this last one. Who can find a wife of noble character? She is far more precious than jewels. Amen. The book of Proverbs is one of those go-to books for inspirations, for advice, for Christians and non-Christians alike. At a surface level reading, the pithy statement strikes us as good practical advice and observations for life. There's quite an appeal to pithy statements that provide seemingly straightforward guidance. We love a good fortune or a one-liner. They make us sound wise beyond our years and feel as though we've got a good grip on how to live the good life. Through my time in college and even up to recently, I stayed away from the Proverbs. Um, I'd kind of chalked it up just to fortune cookie truths, tiny nuggets, nuggets of advice that I didn't really thoughtfully have to consider. And I thought that these one-liners were really just best suited for the decor over at Hobby Lobby. <laughs> and that's a shame, had I, because had I heeded the advice of the Proverbs, I think I would have avoided a lot of foolishness. So don't be like me. This book is so much more than pithy one-liners. If we think that way, we reduce the profound piece of God's word that this is, which is capable of piercing us to the division of soul and spirit to a book filled with purely secular and rational statements. These straightforward statements end up coming across as humanist observations rather than the divine authority that they are. The book of Proverbs uses the word wisdom over and over again. This word in the Hebrew is the word chokmah. Although Ecclesiastes and Job are also a part of the wisdom literature, they don't explicitly use this word as much. Proverbs is set apart from the wisdom literature by its focus on chokmah. The author works to highlight the power and influence of chokmah for both those who are led by it and those who work against it. The Bible Project, if you watched the video, depicts this really well in one of the videos on the Proverbs. It explains that wisdom is woven into the very fabric of reality. There's a needle weaving wisdom into the very nature of the universe. This needle weaves a fruit tree, and one person is working with wisdom to receive fruit from the tree, while another person is working against wisdom, trying to take the fruit before it's time to be picked. Tim says, wherever people are making good or just or wise choices, they're tapping into wisdom, like the per person working with the tree. And whenever someone is making a bad decision, they're working against wisdom, trying to obtain the fruit in their own way. This wisdom is active in its outwork, an invi invisible reality that exists regardless of how we interact with it. And it's also invitational. Early on in the book of Proverbs, wisdom is personified and referred to as lady wisdom. She invites each and every one of us to be led by her to live in the peace and the abundance and security that she provides for all who want to truly live a good life. She invites us to work with her, 
not against her. In Proverbs 1, verses 20 to 23, we hear Lady Wisdom's invitation. It says, Out in the open, wisdom calls aloud. She raises her voice in the public square. On top of the walls, she cries out. At the city gate, she makes her speech. How long will you who are simple love your simple ways? How long will mockers delight in mockery and fools hate knowledge? Repent at my rebuke. Then I will pour out my thoughts to you. I will make known to you my teachings. Lady Wisdom addresses three kinds of people. The first are the simple. The simple aren't people who are uneducated or who live a simple life. They're mostly young people who don't have much life experience. It's not that they don't want to be wise and grow into maturity. It's that they simply don't have the know-how. Their eyes haven't been trained to see chokmah. Whether we like it or admit it or not, everyone starts in this place. And there's nothing wrong with that. All of us need to be trained to seek maturity and wisdom. But none of us want to be simple-minded 80-year-olds. The second kind of people are the fools. They can see wisdom, but they willingly ignore it, thinking that they know better and instead choose what's foolish. The term fool is an insult, a moral judgment. It's like being called an idiot. The fools can be shown the errors of their ways, but with a lot of direction from wise people. Unfortunately, the fools often will surround themselves with foolish friends. They allow themselves to be led and influenced by those fools, rather than choosing the input of the wise. So are you someone who maybe never asks for the opinion of others on your dating relationship or your financial situation, or, you know, fill in the blank, because you don't want to hear what other people who are wise have to say. You don't want to be told that God perhaps has a better way for you. Or maybe you are someone who does ask for advice, but again, from all the wrong people not the godly people whose lives you ultimately wish to imitate. And even though you know that God cares about you and how you steward your money, you might be someone who doesn't bring that into the light. Rather, you hide it from people who could help you grow for fear of looking like a fool, while all the while being foolish. Or maybe you're the guy who lashes out at his roommates, you're quick-tempered and argumentative, and you remain unrepentant because it's just who you are. Or you are someone who hears good advice, you accept it as being good, but then for one reason or another, you immediately go and do the opposite. You would be the fool being referred to here. The third kind of people are the mockers. They're also known as the scoffers. They don't ignore wisdom like the fool, rather they are openly opposed to and hostile to wisdom. They think wisdom is stupid. They think that they know everything and are aggressive towards those that they see as lacking understanding. They are invited to pursue wisdom, yet they refuse to listen. When Jesus said not to give your pearls to pigs, he likely had in mind the mockers. The good news is that wisdom has been inviting all of us to listen to her. Even today, she calls aloud and invites each of us, the wise, the simple, the fools, and the mockers, to listen. So let's pray. Lord, we come to your awesome presence from the shadows into your radiance. By your blood, we enter your brightness. Search us, try us, 
consume all our darkness. Shine on us, Lord. May we be a part of filling this land with your glory. Spirit, blaze within us, attune our hearts to you. Send us forth in wisdom. Shine your light through us. In your name we pray, amen. So let's, fig- let's start by figuring out two important things. One is who wrote this book, and two is why. So who wrote this book? It's important to note as we read with an attempt to understand the original intent that this whole book was written from a male point of view and primarily addresses men. There is much use of the phrase young men when addressing the audience. Now, I hate to break it to you women. This doesn't mean that you can't just check out for the next you know, half hour. In chapter 1, verse 5, the audience is expanded to address the wise as well. Simply put, Proverbs is composed of a number of texts from different authors. The text itself makes this clear. It's not to believe that Solomon may have gathered these texts, but that he didn't write them all, although that even is a little bit argued, as we'll talk about later. The first section of Proverbs, uh, 1 through 9, is from the perspective of a father. Let me just make sure. How did I make it all the way over there? Just uh, ignore this verse at the bottom. Um, The first section of Proverbs 1 through 9 is from the perspective of a father who is addressing a son. There we go. A son who is at a pivotal age and time in his life. He's likely trying to figure out how to be a man and is making decisions that will define what kind of man he'll be. Beyond this identity as a father, Proverbs 1 verses 8 through 9 verses 18 are without explicit authorship. Many attribute these sayings to Solomon, whether they're purely his wise sayings or inspired by the wisdom of others is unclear. We do know that Solomon, when given an opportunity to be granted whatever he desired from God, specifically requested and was granted wisdom, a wisdom that did far surpass that of others. And in 1 Kings 4 verse 32, it declares that 3,000 proverbs are attributed to him. Most scholars, however, believe that it's best to limit Solomon's contribution of the book to chapters 10, verses 1, through chapter 22, verse 16, and chapter 25, verse 1, through chapter 29, verse 27. Just different sections. However, these sections still constitute the single major contribution of the book, so it's understandable to attribute a lot of the Proverbs to Solomon. Just because Solomon contributed the most to this book doesn't mean that he wrote the book, though. The book was written over a long, unclear period of time. It's reasonable to infer that the book was compiled, edited, and re-edited multiple times before it became what it is now. And that means that in addition to the authors who are referenced, we also may have an editor or editors who compiled these sayings from their various sources and put together this work. Those editors are perhaps referred to in that verse from earlier, in Proverbs 25, verse 1, which states, These are more Proverbs of Solomon compiled by the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah. The author's names in the book aren't well known. Agur and King Lemuel are names that only occur once and with very little information. We get lost.
Oh, it's just loading. Just, you know. I don't think I'm doing I'm just clicking left. Is back. If I, okay, here we go. All right, we're catching up. Here we go. Okay. So yeah, Agur is mentioned in chapter 30, verse 1. It says, the sayings of Agur, son of Jaca, an inspired utterance. And then King Lemuel is mentioned in chapter 31, verse 1. The sayings of King Lemuel, an inspired utterance, his mother taught him. And Tim Mackey says, Agur is the model reader, someone who's always open to hearing God's wisdom. And that Lemuel, a non-Israelite king, is passing along the wisdom given to him by his mom. And quickly, I just would like to stress that Proverbs, while it starts with wisdom from the father, also highlights that wisdom can be, that women can be very wise as well. It's no small thing that the author personifies wisdom as a woman, and that Lemuel here is passing on the wisdom that he received from his mother. And lastly, there are the 30 sayings of the wise, which are anonymous yet perhaps professional scholars. These start in chapter 22, verse 17, with these are the sayings of the wise, and they go all the way through chapter 24, verse 34. In addition to the voices of the authors we just mentioned, Proverbs was very likely influenced by the voices of the prevailing surrounding cultures. Many scholars have studied and speculated the relationship between some of the Proverbs and Egyptian wisdom literature, particularly one Egyptian piece called The Instruction of Amenope. Whether Proverbs influenced Egyptian literature or the other way around, it's unclear. Their connection is, however, undeniable from specific verses to the structure itself. The structure itself parallels in the 30 different um, chapters, too. So, for instance, chapter 22 of Proverbs, verse 28, reads, Do not move an ancient boundary stone set up by your ancestors. While an excerpt from Aminope reads, Do not carry off the landmark at the boundaries of the arable land, nor disturb the position of the measuring cord. And, in another, uh, and then another instance in Proverbs, chapter 23, verse 4 through 5, it says, Do not wear yourself out to get rich. Do not trust your own cleverness. Cast but a glance at riches, and they're gone, for they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. While an excerpt from Aminope reads, Cast not thy heart in pursuit of riches. Place not thy heart upon externals. They, riches, have made themselves wings like geese and are flown away to the heavens. Given that the Egyptian culture was more dominant than that of Israel, and that, although undetermined, the dating of the Egyptian literature likely proceeds out of the Proverbs, it's likely the case that the Proverbs got some of their content from other places, such as the Egyptian wisdom literature. Proverbs does still have its own unique assimilation and, and integration into the Hebrew worldview. And even the potential for Proverbs being influenced by the surrounding cultures affirms the character of wisdom among Israel, since Israel had a unique relationship with wisdom that set them apart. The wise men of Israel knew the writings and wisdom of the prevailing surrounding cultures. Having multiple authors and also unclear sources for their wisdom does bring to light the question, what is wisdom? Is it coming up with your own original ideas or pieces of advice? 
Is it discerning wisdom from others? Is it a natural skill or one that you can develop? Or is it about knowing how to attain wisdom? We can rule some of those out. Truly wise people don't just sit around thinking up their own original thoughts, as if there were any, as Ecclesiastes will point out. Truly wise people actually learn from other people about everything. They don't need to be the source of wisdom. So for instance, if you are politically conservative, do you think that you have nothing to learn from and that you shouldn't listen to liberals? If so, you're a fool. Because Solomon thought he could learn from the Egyptians who had once enslaved his people. Who do you think that you can't learn from? White conservatives, blue-collar workers, those that don't have your strengths or skill set, the boomers in your life, perhaps? The wise will be very discerning with what they hear, but they know that wisdom can be found everywhere, just as foolishness can. The wise that seek to mature in Jesus with age will realize how much advice we need on any number of things. Being wise doesn't mean we no longer get advice. The opposite's actually true. The wise are the most aware of their need for advice. So why was this book written? I think it's important to highlight that this book seems to stand out from the rest of the biblical narrative. It kind of seems to be a bit of a detour from the main story. It's not asking things like, what's God like? Or even, what has God done? The questions that this book does seem interested in answering are much more about the practical, day-in and day-out things of life as the people of God. This book was written to teach us how to live and asks questions like, how does God want me to treat people? What kind of behavior does he think is wise and good? What does he want me to do with my finances? And how do I raise my family and go about building my life? Proverbs was written to answer these questions. The message version of, this, of the first couple of verses of Proverbs says that it was written down so that we will know how to live well and right, to understand what life means and where it's going. A manual for living, for learning what's right and just and fair, to teach the inexperienced the ropes and give our young people a grasp on reality. So that's why Proverbs was written. Now we're gonna look at the organization and the themes, or the theme of this book. Proverbs is a book with a fairly straightforward outline. There are very clearly two distinct sections. Section one in, chap in chapters one through nine, and then section two starts at chapter 10 and goes all the way to the end in chapter 31. Section one is a lengthier discourse, one, uh, I'm sorry, on wisdom, while section two is what the book is most known, known for, those short, pithy statements and one-liners. So section one is a lengthier discourse. Section two is known for the short, pithy statements. In your handout, I've attached the outline for you, or better yet, Paul has attached the out outline for you, so thank you, Paul. Proverbs one, one through seven is the preamble, and that just means the introduction to the whole book. And then verses two through six state the purpose of the book that we read earlier in the message version, but here I'm gonna give it to you again in the new um, the NIV version, the 
NIV, not version. It would be redundant, you know. <laughs> and it's for gaining wisdom and instruction, for understanding words of insight, for receiving instruction and prudent behavior, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to those who are simple, knowledge and discretion to the young, let the wise listen and add to their learning, and let the discerning get guidance for understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. Verse 7 lays out the foundation, the, the key and the basis on which the rest of this book depends. And it is all within the context of fear of the Lord. It reads, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of, wis of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. And we'll talk about verse 7 a lot more at the end. The first section, or the first nine chapters of Proverbs, are written from that perspective of a father addressing his son, as we mentioned earlier. The second section, which is where we'll spend most of our time, chapters 10 and beyond, is where you can find all those pithy statements dealing with the high stakes of life. They practically illustrate that there are two ways to live, one that leads to life and the other that leads to death. As a quick note, this latter half of the book includes three subsections, and this is where we'll find the additional authors. Like earlier in the outline, it says the wise, Agur, and King Lemuel. Because as a reminder, not all of Proverbs are words of Solomon. So let's talk about the organizational structure of Proverbs. Now there, yes, now there are capital, there's capital P Proverbs, like the book, and then there are the lowercase Proverbs, uh, which are the statements. And I'm going to talk about the lowercase Proverbs for a little bit. Proverbs are commonly shared sayings for all. They are wise sayings that are generally, but not always true. Another way to think about this is that they are very similar to axioms. They're quick phrases that are self-evidently true. So some examples that are generally true, uh, the early bird gets the worm, or better late than never. But then also, these examples of things that aren't always true. Can you think of a time when you finished an assignment early only to have the deadline extended for those who didn't? or a time when you turn an assignment late and then you still got a zero. Again, Proverbs are commonly used sayings that are generally but not always true. The Proverbs that we see the most in chapters 10 to 31 are referred to as bicola. Cola means, here we go. Cola means lines of poetry, so bicola means two parallel lines of poetry. This means that the first line of poetry usually relates in some way to the second line. Or here, I'll keep it up for you. The Proverbs themselves don't seem to be in any particular order from chapter 10 and beyond. In the book, uh, textbook, An Introduction to the Old Testament, the authors Longman and Dillard note that it seems best to continue in our understanding of the Proverbs, specifically in chapters 10 through 31, as essentially a randomly ordered collection. But the sentence structures of individual proverbs do have an order. Like I said, they're usually by cola in nature. So you can't just quote one half of the proverb and then communicate what the author intended. You need, to, you need the full proverb, the full couplet. Longman Dillard 
emphasizes this when he says, there is also use of antithetical parallelism in which the same truth is examined from opposite perspectives. For instance, in Proverbs 15, verse 28, the heart of the righteous weighs its answers, but the mouth of the wicked gushes evil. The same truth is examined from both the perspective of the wise and of the fool. The wise thinks before he speaks, while the fool gushes evil. So on to the last two subsections, and we won't spend a lot of time here. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 17 through 24, 34 are written sayings from the wise and have much fewer bicola and instead longer discourses like in the first nine chapters. And then at the very end, there's Proverbs 31, which functions more as a cohesive poem. Tim Mackey notes that the woman outlined here could be a sort of real life version of the metaphoric lady wisdom depicted earlier in the book. Now moving along to the theme, and this is the idea that pervades the entire book. Wisdom and folly are personified, referred to as lady wisdom and lady folly. Wisdom herself is introduced in chapter one, verse 20 to 33, and then has a longer, more extended reflection in chapter eight. This reflection can be seen as a poetic representation of God's attribute of wisdom. Folly is mentioned leading up to chapters 9 as a strange woman or the adulterous woman against whom the father warns his son about. Proverbs 2 verses 12 through 16 and then 8 verses 22 to 24, we'll read together, they describe what life with with lady wisdom looks like. Wisdom will save you from the ways of wicked men, for men whose words are perverse who have left the straight paths to walk in dark ways, who delight in doing wrong and rejoice in the perverseness of evil, whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. Wisdom will save you also from the adulterous woman, from the wayward woman with her seductive words. Proverbs 8 verses 22 to 36 are the words of Lady Wisdom herself. So let's listen to what she has to say. The Lord brought me forth as the first of his works, Before his deeds of old, I was formed long ages ago, at the very beginning, when the world came to be. When there were no watery depths, I was given birth. When there were no springs overflowing with water, before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills, I was given birth. Before he made the world, or its fields, or any of the dust of the earth. Now then, my children, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Listen to my instruction and be wise. Do not disregard it. Blessed are those who listen to me, watching daily at my doors, waiting at my doorway. For those who find me, find life, and receive favor from the Lord. But those who fail to find me harm themselves. All who hate me love death. Proverbs 2, verses 17 through 19. Describe what life with Lady Folly looks like. Who has left the part... It says of her, she's left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant that she made before God. Surely her house leads down to death and her paths to the spirits of the dead. None who, who go to her return or attain the paths of life. For the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps lead straight to the grave. She gives no thought to the way of life. 
Her paths wander aimlessly, but she does not know it. Life with Lady Wisdom is the good life, and life with Lady Folly is no life at all. Wisdom can be trusted, for she is of old, there at the beginning of time. She emulates God's divine qualities and character. If we see wisdom, we see God. And if we live out wisdom, we live out godliness. Wisdom invites all to accept her counsel, which leads to life, and to reject the embrace of others, which leads to death. Overall, there is a theme and atmosphere of straightforwardness here. The way the world works seems plain, and it appears that you can work out the way that you should go. Foolish behavior leads to destruction, and wise behavior leads to life. This has caused readers to read the Proverbs as if there are invariable rules of life that can simply be applied to yourself, like a self-help manual. Prosperity Gospel takes this as a handbook that needs to be followed so that God blesses you. But given our other readings, this can't possibly be the way to read it. Even when you don't take it to that extreme, someone like Dave Ramsey will use the wisdom of Proverbs to lay out a specific way that you should use and not use money in the world. But the thing to remember is that while Proverbs are generally true, they aren't always. So we need to be weary of applying them to our lives in a black and white way. If anything, Proverbs allow for a far greater complexity. There are clear indications within the book that we're not to read the Proverbs by themselves as statements of absolute truth. Consider Proverbs 26, verses 4 through 5. Verse 4 reads, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you yourself will be just like him. But then immediately verse 5 reads, Answer a fool according to his folly, or he'll be wise in his own eyes. So in one circumstance, we should, an we should not answer a fool according to his folly, and in another circumstance, we should. Scholar Ian Proven says that we need wisdom to know which wise saying to use in any given situation. We can't apply all Proverbs to all situations. So we've covered a lot so far, and I'm just going to quickly recap. Proverbs is a compilation of sayings from various sources about how to be truly wise in the Lord. It addresses anyone who's willing to listen and lays out two distinct paths for life, for those who walk with wisdom and those who work against it. The path of life and the path of death. It makes the claim that wisdom is at work regardless of our decision, but invites all of us to a life of wisdom and ultimately godliness. So what do we do with all of this? Now that we have some firm footing, let's go back to the foundational point that I mentioned earlier that undergirds this whole book, and that's Proverbs 1, 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Or, sorry, is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. But what does it mean to fear the Lord? What images come to mind when you hear the phrase of the Lord? Are we to think of him, the Lord, as some scary movie villain, or perhaps a, su a Seuss in the sky who's just throwing down lightning bolts if we don't behave? Or maybe like a Thanos-like figure who will stop at nothing to get his way to the destruction of so many. Ian Proven said, Wisdom has to begin with fear of the Lord, meaning that to live a life of faith, relationship must precede ethics. Relationship must precede ethics. 
our relationship with God determines how we'll think, behave, and make moral decisions. This begs the question, what kind of relationship should we have with God? I think the best way to understand the kind of relationship that produces a fear that leads to wisdom is to look at the relational dynamic that runs throughout the whole of the biblical narrative, the one where God is our father and we are his children. Within that father-child context, we're going to cover two facets of the relationship. First is discipline, and the second is obedience. Now, these are two sides of the same coin. They're the roles of our covenant with God. He disciplines, and we obey. That's how it's supposed to go. So before we dive into the so what, I want us to make sure we get one thing clear. God sets the bar for parenthood. He isn't like your earthly dad. He's your earthly dad either is or isn't like God. And to the degree that he is like God, he's a good father. God is not like your earthly parents. Your parents either are or aren't like God. And I hope that your parents are like God. But even if they are, they still pale in comparison to how good God is. And if your parents aren't very much like God, I really am sorry. That's a tragic thing. However, remember, God is your first parent. Let him make up for their deficit. He can and he wants to. So now getting back to Proverbs 1-7, what does it mean that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom? What does this kind of fear look like? To answer these questions, we'll discuss those two relational dynamics, discipline and obedience. So the first one is discipline. Fear that's rooted in relationship with the Lord comes from discipline. Sometimes we wrongly equate the word discipline with punishment. And I'm not using it that way. Although discipline can include punishment, I'm using a much more comprehensive definition. The definition I'm working off of is discipline includes all of the things that go into raising a child into maturity. Discipline includes all of the things that go into raising a child into maturity. A well-disciplined child isn't the one who gets spanked the most, it's the one who needs to be spanked the least. My main point here is that because God is a good father, he won't let you raise yourself. Because God is a good father, he won't let you raise yourself. If you've ever played a sport or been a part of an ensemble like choir or orchestra or band, you know that your coach or director will provide you with the necessary training and direction to become the best that you can be. Sometimes, however, what they require feels unbearable or even feels humiliating. So it is with the Lord. Let's read Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 through 11, which references Proverbs directly in the first couple of verses. It takes up the whole screen. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we've all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. 
No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Because God is a good father, he won't let you raise yourself. He won't neglect his duty. As verse 10 says, he wants us to share in his holiness. Sometimes that means that we are shielded from trouble, and other times it means that he allows for trouble to come our way. There will be many difficult things that come our way, and whether or not those come as punishments from God is irrelevant. What is relevant is that he'll use those difficult things to discipline us, to train us, and to help us grow into maturity. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. What does that mean? Consider this example. Bobby is a fourth grader who had a bad day at school. He got picked on and was really angry, rightfully so, with the person who picked on him. He was also sad and a bit humiliated. That's a really difficult thing for a child to have to go through. A good dad, though, is going to use this as a teaching moment so that Bobby can learn how to act towards people who are mean towards him. That's discipline. Dad isn't going to punish Bobby in this scenario, by no means. Rather, he's going to pull him in for a hug and build him up, give him confidence, and remind him to believe the truth about himself. Dad is going to teach Bobby to persevere by sending Bobby back to school the next day to face this head-on with dignity and with grace. This is enduring hardship as discipline. God does treat us as his children. But now let's tweak the scenario. Let's say Bobby goes to school and he gets picked on and in his anger he strikes his bully and they go to blows. Bobby feels very justified in this. Not only will Bobby get in trouble at school, but because he has a good dad, he'll also be disciplined at home. Dad needs to teach Bobby before he's an adult that you can't assault everyone who hurts your feelings. So after dealing wisely with the complex emotions of his son, Dad might ground him for an appropriate amount of time. God chastises everyone he accepts as his son. When you do something you know to be wrong, that ought to ignite a good fear of the Lord within you. Because you know that either via the consequences of your own actions or God's response a responsive punishment to your actions that's designed to train you, it's not going to go well for you. It's not going to be fun. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. This is the kind of fear that leads to wisdom. You ought to fear God enough to obey him. And remember that the fear of the Lord is just the beginning of wisdom designed to lead you into maturity. The mature person is the one who doesn't need to rely on, the fe- on fear to do the right thing. They'll do it because it's just become a part of who they are. So God is going to discipline us, but that's because he loves us. So let's look at our side of the arrangement, the obedience. Now I'm not going to spend very much time on this at all. Suffice it to say that this will either be a palatable thing for you or it'll be a bitter truth. If what I'm about to say bothers you, I encourage you to talk to God about it, and then follow up this conversation with someone who you admire in the faith. Here's my main point. Those who have a good father, like father-child relationship with God, obey him. Those who have a good father-child relationship with God, obey him. 
Jesus said, if you love me, then you'll keep my commands. In other words, you will obey me if you love me. Consider this if-then statement. If you love me, then you'll obey me. This is intuitive to us if we just stop to think about it. We listen to the voices that we trust the most, don't we? If you trust that God loves you and knows you and wants what's best for you, and if you believe that he's all-seeing and all-powerful and knows better than you, then you'll obey him. So let this be a litmus test for you. When God's discipline comes your way, what's your typical response? Do you become angry or bitter with God as if he takes delight in your pain? Do you argue with him and put up a fight? Or are you quick to obey and to receive the discipline with thankfulness? Do you trust him? Do you love him? If you want to grow in wisdom, you need to know who the Lord is. Fear him, trust him, lean into his discipline, and then you'll become wise. So just to conclude, Andrew, you can come up. This is how we get wise. It starts by learning who God is and how to properly fear him. And in the end, we get to become like him no longer needing the fear to motivate us, but rather living out a reverent obedience to the God who knows us and loves us. Proverbs teaches us how to obtain a beautiful, peace-filled life. And if you want that, you should take this book seriously. To the extent that you're willing to work with chokmah, wisdom, life will go well for you. Now, as you'll see, Ecclesiastes and Job will expose the complexities of this, but they won't negate this truth. So now I'm just going to read a benediction over you guys as Drew gets ready to come over. May the fear of the Lord take root in you so that you may grow as Jesus did in wisdom and in favor with God. And may you reach maturity as the voice of Lady Wisdom rings true in your ear. Endure the hardships of this life as discipline and learn to trust your Heavenly Father, our Abba God, all the more as the day of Christ's return draws near.